Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Katie Law, Deputy Literary Editor at The Evening Standard. Welcome to the fifth episode in our podcast, Underground Tales for London. We've partnered with Borough Press to bring you 11 original short stories, each written by a London-loving author from around the world, each inspired by or set on a different tube line. You can listen to them online at standard.co.uk forward slash podcasts and subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes and other podcast apps. In this episode, we're here, Tamsin Gray's story, My Beautiful Millennial. It's a story about a young woman called Dido. She travels from Aldgate to Amersham on the Metropolitan Line, rehearsing how she's going to break up with her much older, rather predatory partner. But first, I'm pleased to say that Tamsin's here with me in the studio. Tamsin, welcome. Tell us about the inspiration for writing My Beautiful Millennial. Um, well, I think that the Me Too campaign had... Um, a certain amount to do with it. I mean, that was very much um, everywhere and uh, reminded me of when I was much younger. Um, uh, so I was very interested in the idea of being a very young person, afloat and adrift in the world, and um, being approached in that way by somebody who you think is going to really help you and is really interested in you because of all your various qualities, and then suddenly realising that actually it's it's sex really that they're after um uh and particularly in this instance so this story is about somebody who maybe isn't so he's 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 predatory maybe in some ways but there's also a backstory to him he's a sad person he's a lonely person and I was very interested in getting to that issue so when young women or any women or or men too uh feel so deeply sorry for somebody or so, so deeply worried about somebody that they end up feeling hugely pressurised into a relationship that they wouldn't actually choose. Mm. And tell us a little bit more about um, your own experience. I mean, is this something that you have come to think about in the light of Me Too or something that was really in the back of your mind for quite a long time? I think in the back of my mind, um, I think what Me Too has done for women of my age and older and all women, I guess, but um, uh, is is the looking back, is the looking back and thinking, oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes, you know, all the way through your teens, all the way through your 20s and so on. There have been these um, incidents, maybe not full-blown relationships that you've got yourself into, but where you've, you've felt 
a pressure on you to um, go along with some kind of romantic connection, some kind of um, something, something that you're not that comfortable with and you mm. wouldn't really choose. Mm. So, yes, I think that's um, happened to an awful lot of people. And going back to the story for a minute, um, mm. you set it on the Metropolitan Line mm. um, and you called it My Beautiful Millennial. Um, why, what made you choose that title? Um, it just came to me. I just had this kind of. I've got, you know, I've got sisters and nieces who are, who are, you know, of that in that in that who are millennials, I guess. Um, I, I just, I, I'm very. Was it? I've got a niece. I've got a niece who's a drama student who I adore. Who's about twenty odd, and she's mm. completely beautiful and completely wonderful, and she's so. Um, full of excitement about the world and she's so sassy and self-expressed, I guess. Mm. Mm. Um, but I also know that underneath all that, she's very vulnerable. Mm. Um, so my beautiful millennial, it just, it came to me thinking about her, mm. thinking very much mm. about my niece mm. and um, the kind of, you know, kind of really excitable, sorry, really excited feeling that you get when you just look at somebody you love and you see them blossoming and, blossoming and at the same time you mm. have this sense of really wanting to protect them and wanting them to be fine. Mm. And it works very well that you've, you know, you put it, um, you put, put it on a tube line. So in the story, the uh, character, Dido, she travels from more or less one end of uh the, the metropolitan line to the other um, and tell us a little bit about your own experiences of traveling on the tube are you a, are you a keen and regular tube traveler I have been I've done a lot of uh, traveling on the tube throughout my life and um, one of my first jobs I've, I've nearly always lived in London one of my first jobs was um, working as a journalist in fact and we got moved from Farringdon all the way to Uxbridge in fact on the metropolitan line and that was awful for me because having spent you know, 10 minutes getting to work, 20 minutes getting to work, suddenly I was on the on this metropolitan line for an hour and a half or whatever it was. Mm. And uh, it was it was it was kind of awful to begin with because you had to get up so much earlier. That was mm. the awful thing. But actually what happened was there was this lovely, long, quiet bit as the metropolitan line left London and, and kind of went out into the suburbs, which were kind of melancholy, but also peaceful and it meant that you got a chance to read and stare out the window and dream and mm. I have actually really fond memories now of, mm. of making that journey. Tamsin, thank you. You can read and watch more of Tamsin's interview online at standard.co.uk and please remember to subscribe on iTunes or other podcast apps for a new episode of Tales for London every Wednesday. And now, here's Tamsin's story in full. My beautiful Menelian. The Evening Standard and the Borough Press present Underground, Tales for London Metropolitan Line My Beautiful Millennial by Tamsin Gray Read by Isabella Inchbald It's a Friday halfway through December, my day off from my shit job. I've got a cold and would have languished in my lumpy, scratchy bed but Paul Fields has summoned me to Amersham. He wants to have a discussion about Christmas, but not over the phone because he finds our phone calls impossible. When I fall silent, it's like I'm howling in pain and he can't reach me. I take ages getting dressed, i.e. even longer than usual. I have finally gone for my black velvet dress with the flouncy skirt, bottle green tights and my lace-up boots, 
amethyst lipstick, my strange curly hair in spikes, my Napoleon coat, black beret, black leather gloves, my green carpet bag, yes, the same green as my tights. Paul Fields says I wear dressing up clothes, that it's a sign of my arrested development. He has offered to take me shopping for a suit, blouses, interview clothes. It would be fun to try things on in classy boutiques instead of charity shops, but I'm trying to disentangle myself from Paul Fields. Leaving my room in disarray, I creep out of the house that I share with around five other humans. As they're mainly invisible, I can't be more precise. It's biting cold, with a rose-gold sun throwing long black shadows. I pick up my wages from Mingles and head for Aldgate. Outside the station, a man in a gold paper crown is holding out a white paper cup. He has decorated his dog with tinsel and the dog is all agitated, shaking and pawing himself, trying to get the stuff off. I drop a twenty-pence piece into the man's paper cup. He frowns. Is that all you can afford, love? Totally thrown, I dig in my bag for the brown envelope I've just been given, which I know contains ten twenty-pound notes, which I'm planning to hand over to Paul Fields, and two tenors which need to last me a whole week. Choking! He's laughing, putting his hand over mine to stop me opening the envelope. I flee into the station. The Metropolitan line is a maroon colour, and Paul Fields and I are marooned on either end of it. The train is waiting, silent and stately. I'm the first one on, and it feels like I'm spying on a secret world. Each way, the walk through carriages, on and on, repeating themselves. The yellow poles, the yellow nooses, and the black strip saying Amersham, Amersham, Amersham. Amersham is the resting place of Ruth Ellis, the last woman in Britain to be hanged. I know this because the last time I went to Amersham, Paul Fields took me to see Ruth's grave. I cringe and sit down, putting my bag on the seat next to me. And as I pull off my hat and gloves, I remember the cup man's raw, chapped fingers and cringe again. I kind of hate him, and hate myself for hating someone who slipped through the cracks and hung on to his sense of humour. The train starts moving, and I gaze up at the yellow nooses, rehearsing my speech to Paul Fields. You've been so kind. You're a wonderful, generous person, and I know that. Paul, I need to be straight with you. Paul Fields is the only person I've got to know since I moved to London, which was in the spring after I got the all clear, and my hair more or less covered my head. I could have gone back to uni, but all my friends had already left, and it would have been too weird starting all over again. I met him on a personal development weekend, which my mum paid for as my 21st birthday present. She left her job to look after me and has hardly any money herself, so it was generous of her but I so would have preferred the cash. There were about 20 people on the course. Paul Fields stood out, being very tall and wide with a great moon of a face, adorned with a bushy moustache. At the end, when everyone else was hugging and kissing, and I was standing there wondering if I was allowed to go home, Paul Fields took me to one side and told me very fervently that he had a wealth of experience and valuable contacts and would like to support me to achieve my full potential. It's not that I don't like you. Do I like him? I think of his eyes, violet-coloured and thickly lashed, startling out of that great jowly face. 
On the personal development weekend, he told everyone that his mother used to call him her little monster. He also said that he was walking wounded from a relationship with a clinically depressed woman called Joy. He'd been a city boy, but had given that up because she needed 24-hour attention. He'd supported her financially through day trading, had carried her through five long years. He had got nothing back. It would be a long time before he was ready to risk intimacy again. He wasn't anything like my idea of a city boy. But what did I know? On our first date, which I didn't realise was a date, he took me to the Dutch Pancake House in Hoban, and for a split second I was disappointed, but then decided it was an ironic place to have lunch. I hadn't drunk for a while, so the house red went straight to my head. I didn't tell him about being ill, but I told him all my other secrets, including that I hated my mum's new boyfriend, that I was thinking of joining an escort agency, oh, and that I had voted leave in the EU referendum. He wasn't interested in my Brexit vote, said he hadn't bothered himself as it wouldn't make any difference to people like him. I babbled on telling him how I'd thought of leaving the EU as taking the road less travelled, as an adventure, a mystery, something wild and free. And then I'd realised that it was the opposite, that we were walling ourselves up, shutting things out, burying ourselves alive. I got carried away, half knowing I was talking crap, and using my hands too much until I knocked over my glass and some wine dripped onto Paul Filz's pale cavalry twill trousers. He tutted and dabbed with his serviette, and said not to worry, these things happen. I passed him the water jug and told him how nervous I was of people finding out and thinking I must be a rustic racist. You live in fear of the vicious judgement of others. He poured a drop of water onto the stain, shaking his head. Poor Dido. I laughed, feeling confused, and then asked why Brexit wouldn't affect people like him, and he put the jug down and said that he didn't want to talk about politics, he wanted to talk about us, and reached for my hand. I snatched mine away. I was taken aback because of what he'd said about needing to recover from joy, and also because he is a lot older than me. But in a drunken muddle, I wondered if I'd misread him, whether he was just being, I don't know, avuncular. Worried I'd been rude, I quickly passed him another serviette, trying to make it look as if that was why I'd moved my hand. He said that he didn't think I should go into escorting. From what he understood of that industry, it wasn't just about going out to dinner. He looked hard at me to see if I'd got what he was driving at. I said that I wasn't under any illusions. He nodded, full of unspeakable emotion. To change the subject, I asked him about day trading, and he groaned under his breath, and then asked for the bill. I asked what was wrong, and he suddenly exploded. Dido, you tell me you're going to prostitute yourself, and then you ask me about day trading. What am I meant to make of you? I felt too upset to answer, like I'd blown it, that he wouldn't want to have anything more to do with me. But once he'd paid, he seemed to pull himself together. He looked at his watch and then out of the window and gazed at me thoughtfully for a while. Then he said he hoped very much I would let him lend me some cash. It would be his pleasure and he would be in no hurry to be repaid. I'm practically a baby boomer, Dido, he said. And you, he reached over and took my jaw in his giant fingertips, are my beautiful millennial.
I borrowed £200 and saw him a lot over the summer. He took me to the British Museum to see the mummies, to a very long foreign film at the National Film Theatre, and for a disgusting breakfast in the Best Western Hotel. I sent a snap of him to my friend Chloe with the title Sugar Daddy, but it wasn't like that. We kissed hello and goodbye, on the lips, mine firmly closed, his slightly parted. He never tried to take my hand again, but we brushed against each other surprisingly often. He would quiz me on whether I'd started therapy or seen a spiritual healer or written an angry letter to my mother, but I'd always failed to follow up any of his recommendations. He told me I was obstinate, evasive, complex, damaged and also bewitching. I took to teasing him to lighten the mood, and to begin with he was perplexed, but he gradually understood, and one day he threw back his head and chortled. It was kind of like when a baby first laughs, apart from not, because instead of joy and wonder, it filled me with a deep foreboding. He started trying to tease me back, but the best he could manage was these awful, priggish put-downs which made my blood run cold. I kept seeing him, but I longed for people my own age. People who could do real banter, who knew who Ed Sheeran was and could discuss crisp flavours. In September, at his insistence, I trekked out to Amersham. His bungalow on the edge of a cul-de-sac smelt of socks and the remains of a kebab strewn under his two giant day-trading screens. There was one picture, a photograph of a ballerina. My mother, he said and hesitated but said no more, and I didn't like to ask. We got the bus to Old Amersham, which was all cobbles and timber, but with a Costa and a Tesco's and a Jules. In the graveyard, he showed me where Ruth Ellis is buried. It's just a grassy patch with nothing marking it, and he told me how Ruth's son Andy destroyed the headstone with a hammer just a few days before taking his own life. Andy had been ten when his mother was hanged, for shooting her racing driver lover dead outside the Magdala pub in Hampstead. As he told me about Andy, he reached for my hand again, and, paralysed by the sadness, I let him hold it. The pigeon gets on at Baker Street. I'm thinking about Paul Fields, rehearsing what to say to him, and I haven't been following the starts and stops and comings and goings. I am vaguely aware of the teenager sitting opposite, that he's black, that he's dressed in black, with white trainers and white wires coming out of his ears. And also the white woman doing her makeup, the way she's spread her kit out on the seat next to her, her silver fur coat and her fountain of cream soda hair. I've taken in these two, and the bright red scarf of a man sitting further along, and a sad-eyed woman with a suitcase and two listless small children. I don't register the pigeon until it's right by my feet, bobbing and bustling, and I scream, I can't help it, and clutch my knees into my chest. And then I feel like a total idiot. The boy opposite looks at me, and then the pigeon, and then back at his phone. No one else takes any notice, out of indifference or politeness, who knows. I put my feet back down firmly, asserting myself over the pigeon. It's a battered-looking thing lopsided with petrol-sheened feathers and mangled feet. It holds its space, examining me with first one tiny orange eye and then the other. Trying to ignore it, I blow my nose and then fix on the cream soda woman's application of mascara. 
It's weird, people doing their makeup on the tube. Such an interesting thing to watch, and they're doing it right there, right in front of you. But you feel like you should pretend it's not happening. Aware of the pigeon, I look at the man in the red scarf. A white man, peaky looking. And he's wrapped the scarf across his nose and mouth like he's worried about breathing in germs. He looks familiar, but I don't know why. The ends of the scarf are tucked into his camel overcoat, underneath which he's wearing jeans and brown Chelsea boots. His legs are crossed, which is unusual for a man on the tube, and very thin, too thin to be wearing skinny blue jeans. I look back up at his face, and it dawns on me that he's a famous actor. I can't remember his name, but he might have been Doctor Who for a while. As I study him, his eyes suddenly slide to meet mine, hostile, and I quickly look away. The pigeon seems to have moved closer and my muscles tense, and completely by mistake I look back at the actor who notices and I want to die. Everyone else is oblivious to him, even the listless children, because they are real Londoners. Default setting, whatever. Not wide-eyed Brexit voting bumpkins like me. Then I realise that someone's talking. I can hear the sound of it, but not the words, and I see that it's the man in the orange puffer jacket. Guantanamo Bay orange is what comes to me. He's partially hidden by the silver fur shoulder of the cream soda woman, so I can see a portion of the jacket and his face, which is olive-skinned, his moving lips and his black curly hair. I watch his lips, trying not to remember that muttering is one of the signs of a suicide bomber. If I was a Londoner, I wouldn't be so jumpy. I wouldn't be so racist. I wouldn't be such a total jerk. But he's staring at his lap, and a fixed stare is another sign. Does he have a rucksack? I lean to my left, away from the pigeon, pretend to be looking in my bag. He doesn't have a rucksack, and he isn't just muttering to himself, but reading aloud from a book. He darts me a look. Not hostile. Questioning. And I fumble in my bag, pretending I didn't actually look at him at all. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And then, as I straighten, the pigeon rushes at me, headlong, and I scream again and I flap my feet at it to ward it off. But the toe of my boot makes contact and with a hoarse and terrible whistle, it rises a foot into the air and then plummets back to the floor. Fuck's sake! The teenager pulls the plugs from his ears and peers at the pigeon. I notice the children looking too, with slack, incurious faces. The actor is looking at his fingernails. I'm so sorry. I say to the boy, don't say sorry to me. The boy is watching the pigeon who is back on its feet, but distinctly unsteady. I didn't, do you think it's okay? The boy shrugs. Everyone gazes after the pigeon who is pluckily hobbling up the aisle. Then the boy puts his earplugs back in, and the reading man goes back to his book, and the celebrity sinks further into his scarf. It's only me watching the pigeon hobble along the train. I wonder if I should go after it, 
gather it up, pop it in my bag and take it to the nearest vet. How much would it cost to mend a pigeon? Would the money in my bag be enough? The pigeon has turned round, is coming back, is picking up speed. I try to stay calm, to be in the moment. I close my eyes and listen to the reading man's lovely voice. But I know the pigeon is coming back to take revenge, and when I take a peek, it's right there in front of me, its orange eyes blazing. And then in a flurry of feathers, it takes off, its beak aimed right at my face, and I jump up, lifting my arms and break into a blind run. But someone's shouting after me, shouting, Mapman! Mapman! And I've left my bag behind, so I stop and turn, my arms still covering my face. It's the reading man who's shouting, and he's waving and beckoning and pointing at the floor between us. Totally freaked out, I peer down and scream again because it is the pigeon. Dismembered, three pieces, the body and the two wings flattened and somehow blackened, lying on the blue speckled floor. And then I see that it's my hat and my two gloves, which have been on my lap, and the reading man is leaning over to pick them up. The pigeon doesn't seem to be anywhere, so I lower my arms. Thank you. I take them from him, but I drop one of the gloves again, and we both go for it, nearly knocking heads. He gets to it first. Thank you, I say again, and he smiles and his eyes crinkle. His book is called The Heart is a Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers. I've heard of it, but I've never read it. I thought it was the pigeon. I really wanted to explain that last crazy scream. I thought these were... I hold up my hat and gloves thinking he will never understand, that I should just pick up my bag and walk far away down the train. But the reading man is laughing, full of comedy and empathy. Yes, yes, he says. You thought I was pointing at the pigeon. Yes, but I thought that these were the pigeon. I thought, ha! He laughs louder, nodding, totally getting it. He thinks it's hilarious and suddenly I'm laughing too. And the children are laughing, and their sad-eyed mother is smiling, and the celebrity has lifted his chin out of his scarf and is grinning from ear to ear. And when I sit down, I see that the teenager is smiling, and I smile back at him, and he shakes his head, still smiling. And I just love him. I love everyone, especially the reading man who has gone back to his book with a smile still playing on his lips. The pigeon is wandering about, inspecting the floor. Such a filthy, decrepit bird. I love that bird. I love its hardiness. I love its self-containment. I love the actor, who is a brilliant actor, if only I could remember his name. And I'm very fond of the children and their mother, who was talking to them both, probably about me, and stroking the little boy's hair. And that cream soda woman. What amazing hair. What an amazing coat. What amazing eyelashes. Great shelves of black shadowing her neon blue eyes. For the first time, I notice an old Indian lady, an anorak over her sari, lots of shopping, battered Mary Janes. Her look is piercing, and I smile at her. And she doesn't smile back, but that's just her way. It's absolutely fine. The train has come out of the tunnel, and golden light is flooding in. And the reading man is reading aloud again. And though I still can't make out the words, it is so lovely. Like I'm a child, and he is reading me a bedtime story. And the train arrives at Finchley Road. The actor stands up, the cream soda woman stands up, and the reading man stands up, stuffing his book in his pocket. And as he steps out of the train, he turns and lifts his hand. I lift my hand back, smiling and smiling, 
but then I see that the pigeon is walking round and round a yellow pole. You need to get off, pigeon, I cry. The bird is very dear to me now, and I really don't want it to be trapped on the train all the way to Wembley Park. It's not going to get off, I pointed it. Someone needs to... But no one moves, so I get to my feet and move towards it, waving my arms, trying to herd it out. I'm bold now with the pigeon. I'm not frightened of it. I just want it to get off. But we run round and round the yellow pole like a couple of complete fools, and the reading man has stopped on the platform to watch. And then the beeping starts, meaning the doors are about to close, and I cry, Oh no! I can't bear it! But at the very last second, the pigeon scurries between the doors and onto the platform, cool as a cucumber. I watch the pigeon until I can't see it anymore, and then I go and sit down. And that's when the Indian woman starts talking to me. No need to worry about the pigeon. She's leaning forward, hands on her knees, shouting over the roar of the train. The pigeon doesn't worry about you. Why should you worry about the pigeon? I shrug and smile, but I feel tense again. She's not really having a go at me. It's just her way. But I want to cry. I get out my phone. On the screen, my friend Chloe kisses her new boyfriend, who is from Quebec and very cute. Yearning twists my guts. The Indian woman gets off at North Harrow. I look out at the mysterious suburbs, the boxy houses, the pyramid roofs, the satellite dishes, a flash of a park, flat and green, a pair of goalposts, a deserted play area. I feel the melancholy weight of them, and my stomach turns over. I blow my nose and think back to holding hands over Ruth Ellis's grave. How, when I finally escaped back to the warm belly of the city, it came to me that I wasn't seeing Paul Fields to relieve my own loneliness, but to relieve his. I ghosted him. Autumn turned into winter. I went for long walks along the river, all the way into town, looking at the lights on the water, listening over and over to the Heart of Glass mashup from The Handmaid's Tale. And then one day he turned up on my doorstep. I hadn't even realised he knew my address. To begin with, he was stiff and angry, saying that I owed him £200, and I said I was very sorry and would pay him back within a week if he would please give me his bank details. But then he sighed and said, Poor Dido, you look awful, I knew you must be ill. And for some reason, this made my eyes fill up. And he did that thing of taking hold of my jaw, tipping my face up so he could see into it. And I clenched my teeth and shook his fingers off. And he stepped over the threshold, saying, Dido, Dido, why can't you bear anyone to look after you? And one of the invisible humans came out of the kitchen to see what was going on. And I had to let him in, and up into my little room under the rafters. And it was like Alice when she ate the eat-me cake. There just wasn't enough space for him. I was pathetic, mumbling that yes, I'd been depressed, and letting him explain to me about my trust issues. And then I let him hug me and nuzzle at my neck. And it was all back on again, and coming up to Christmas. He hadn't made any plans and was wondering if he could host his millennial waif. I would need to stay over on Christmas Eve because of the lack of transport, but he didn't want to rush me. He would sleep on the sofa. He paused, patting my knee, and then sighed and said, at least think about it. I imagine what would happen if I succumbed to Paul Fields, waking up on Christmas morning together naked between his nylon sheets 
and he would kiss me and call me his beautiful millennial. He would tell me there was no need to ever go back to the house in Mile End, and I would agree. I wouldn't be missed. Eventually, the invisible humans would realise I had gone and put my stuff into bin bags and let the room to someone else. Someone more able, more nimble, more London. And I would become Mrs. Fields and give the bungalow my feminine touch. I would no longer find him repellent, but would cleave to him like a pet. I would look out onto the cul-de-sac, and mid-afternoon he might take a break from day trading to walk me around it, and when we got back in, I'd make us both a cup of tea. Trust in Navy Gore-Tex, he meets me off the train. Oh, poor Dido, he says, you're full of cold. I'd been thinking we'd just go for a coffee, somewhere close to the station, but he wants to take me to a nice pub in Old Amersham. On the bus, I go back to rehearsing the Christmas sentences in my head. But when I open my mouth, I say that the most terrible thing happened on the train. I tell him about the pigeon, its deformed feet, and how I panicked in front of the other passengers. When I finished, he thinks for a while, biting his lip. You have told me that the pigeon terrified and repulsed you. Enough for you to lose control in front of strangers. He shudders and closes his eyes. I look out of the window at a DIY shop called Chilton Micah Hardware. It's about intimacy, isn't it? He takes hold of my chin. Dido, is this your way of asking me to help you over your fear of intimacy? No, I say. I was telling you about a poor mangled pigeon and how it freaked me out. I get a flash of the reading man laughing, the crinkles round his eyes. In the empty dining area of the pub, a waitress is cleaning the tables with disinfectant so strong it makes my eyes itch. I can just hear Ed Sheeran and Beyonce singing together on the radio in the kitchen. He buys two glasses of house red and asks if it ever occurs to me to ask him a question. I think of the ballerina, but I ask him whether he is still in touch with Joy, his ex-girlfriend, and how she's getting on. He looks puzzled, as if he can't remember who she is, and then says that she's fine. What, better? I ask, and he says that she's made a full recovery and has gone travelling. I get out the money. What's that for? He says. It's what I owe you, I say. It was kind of you to lend me it. But you can't afford to pay me back. You're broke. I'm okay. I'll manage. I don't want it. He pushes it back to me, panicked. I stare down at the wad of notes. Dido, please, he says. If you really want to pay me back, then spend Christmas with me. No, I say. Why, he says. Because I don't want to see you anymore. I stand up, taking my coat off the back of my chair, and he tells me to sit back down for goodness sake. I say that I'm going, and he stands up too and says he'll catch the bus with me. I say I'd prefer it if he didn't. When he tries to help me with my coat, I push him away. The waitress looks over. He steps back. So you're paying me off, he says. I'm paying you back, I say. You're going off to be an escort. I look towards the door. Well, I hate to be the one to tell you, Dido, but you're probably not pretty enough. He nods, emphatic. You're too scruffy, too grubby looking, and your hair, my love, is terrible. I smile and leave the pub. Lighter of step, a burden lifted. The bus is there at the bus stop, and I'm stepping onto it when he catches me up. Have the blasted money, Dido. He shoves it into my bag. I expect him to insist on getting on with me, but he stays on the pavement. 
I wish you well, Dido, he cries. I wish you a long and happy life. The bus pulls away. Feeling really bad again, I wave goodbye. But then the relief of being back among those cheerful yellow poles and seeing the word Allgate sliding along the black strips. I'd been out to the very edge of things. But now I'm travelling back, the enormous orange sun setting behind me. Packs of school kids get on, laughing, squabbling, shrieking, munching crisps. And then they're gone, and there's just the roar of the train, and it's dark and the train is reflected in its own windows. The two women sitting next to me are going to do their Christmas shopping. One of them is going to buy iconic drops for Misty and an Amazon Echo for Ben. I think of the £200 in my bag, and whether I should tag along with them to Oxford Street, go on a spending spree, or whether to stuff it into the man at Allgate's Cup and tell him he should take the tinsel off his poor dog. The track straightens, and I can see far along the train all the way to where a white girl in gold baggy trousers is filming a black girl in a pink tutu doing gymnastics around a yellow pole. I think of the ballerina in the photograph and her little monster, and it clutches my heart. Then the tutu girl goes into a back bend, hands gripping the pole, climbing downwards to the speckled floor. And I love the way London is so itself, so Londonish, and how everyone in it, natives, settlers, fugitives, visitors, fat cats, underdogs, lovers, loners, we're all part of its dance. And at Finchley Road, the orange puffer jacket, the mop of black hair and the book sticking out of his pocket, when he sees me, he cries, ha, and looks around, lifting his hands in a question. I laugh and shrug and lift my hands too. You got rid of him in the end, he shouts it over the beeping of the closing doors. Yes, I did. I think of the pigeon's eyes, glassy orange buttons, and then of Paul Fields's eyes, that violet intensity. It's for the best, said the reading man. It was never going to work out between you two. And then, even though there are a few spare seats, he glances at my bag, and my heart lifts. And I lift my bag, and he sits down. My Beautiful Millennial is a short story of the underground from Tamsin Gray. Tamsin Gray's latest novel, She's Not There, is out on 19th of April 2018, and will be available in audiobook, hardback, and ebook. You can find the other stories in this collection from the Borough Press on Audible, Kobo and Apple. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.